according to his promise. We are, are we? I'll hold off. There we go. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again tonight in the book of Numbers. We have uh, left Leviticus in the rearview mirror, and we are in the book of Numbers. Ooh, did you see how I did that? You know, if you just click a button on your toolbar, it's going to open wherever it's set to open. And typically, the first one you click opens on the right, and then the second one you click opens on the left. And if you you know that's what it does, then you can just deal with it like that. But if you want to specifically open something, then instead of clicking it, you can click and drag it and put it where you want it to be. So you can fill the whole screen with it. Or you can move it to the left side, move it to the right side, the different things that you're doing there. Anyway, we'll have to do some more Logos classes when we, uh, when we have time for it. So the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 12, no, chapter 11. This is day 63, day 63, the March 4th reading for Through the Bible. And uh, we have to cover Numbers 11, 12, and 13 before we leave tonight. So I might keep you here till midnight or later. We'll see what happens there. And uh, no, and, and we're looking forward to this because uh, the spies are getting sent forth. And for those of you that have read ahead or if you already know the story, uh, 12 spies go into the land and, uh, and 10 of them are, two of them are real excited about what they found. 10 of them would rather go back to Egypt. So, uh, of course, we're good patriotic Americans. We believe in the ballot box and voting and 10 to 2 means uh, it's the will of God to go back to Egypt. Is that right? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sometimes majority is wrong. In fact, very often majority is wrong. So, well, we'll get to that. That's chapter 13. We've got chapter 11 and 12 before we get to chapter 13, so we'll tackle all that. Also, tonight is question and answer night because it is Wednesday, so uh, we'll start with some of that. Before we do anything, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's commit our time for the glory of Jesus Christ, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight once again recognizing that this is your grace. Your grace is set before us, Father. It's only by your grace that we're saved. It's only by your grace that we have a lampstand with the Word of God going forth. It's by your grace we have the the health and strength to be here tonight, Father. So thank you for this opportunity. We call upon your faithfulness once again tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a microphone ready to go for any questions. Is it up here? No, it must be back there. The microphone usually gets hidden at the recording desk when not in use. I checked my question and answer folder earlier, and I believe we are caught up to date. The last question was the one from a week ago that, uh, that Glenda had asked about land, seed, and blessing. So as far as I know, we are caught up to date and current. At least as far as those are concerned. Do we have any additional questions for tonight? Also, we can keep an eye on the YouTube stream and see if there's any live questions coming in on YouTube. But that has a 30-second delay on it. So you guys that are here in the live studio audience, you get the jump on anybody that's on the YouTube channel. Or not. It's not mandatory. If you have no questions, that's fine. I can, I can ask you some questions. We can turn around the other direction. All right. I know Dean had some, but I think those are more conversational than Wednesday night uh, type stuff. All right, well, we'll give a last call then. Anything coming in across on YouTube? Nothing at all? All right. Well then, that gives us more time in the book of Numbers. How about that? And keep in mind, for the volunteer microphone runner, uh, you do lay up treasure for heaven even though you didn't actually do anything. You were willing to do something. And so if the readiness is present, then it is rewardable according to the readiness. 
So I uh, appreciate that. Well, let's start with Numbers chapter 11. And uh, the, the heading here is the people complain. That's the pericope heading. Now, anytime you have those publishing blurbs in your Bible, that's not actually part of the Bible. Uh, this is called a pericope heading. And um, different Bibles have different pericope headings, and, and they're actually the product of the Bible publisher. And so this one that we're looking at here is the, the New American Standard Bible, and those pericope headings are different than the New King James or the King James or, or whatever else. And by the way, Logos has put all of those pericope headings in uh, in uh, the search bar. So if you forget, for example, what you're looking for, you can just start typing the people complain and you're going to see, oh, Numbers 11 verses 1 through 9. You can click that. You could do the same thing too, by the way, if you forget, you know, David and Goliath. And uh, David kills Goliath. There it is, 1 Samuel 17, 31 through 58. So little things like that might be helpful if you can't exactly remember the part of the Bible you're looking for. Just start typing a word or two that you think might be a pericope heading that would be at the top of the paragraph there. And uh, it's quite surprising you can find many of the things you're looking for uh, on that basis. All right, so the people complain, chapter 11. And I'm surprised there's actually not more of those pericope headings. There should be, you know, about a dozen of them here in uh, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all as it relates to Israel and their nonstop complaint. But remember where we left off last night? They were marching out. They were they were leaving Sinai. They'd been at Sinai for a month and a, for a year and a month. They're getting ready to march forth. Uh, and as they go forth, then uh, by their armies, by their divisions, uh, following their banners, you think, okay, ready to go, right? Uh, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war and, or whatever, they're singing hymns. And, and how long does it take? Well, flip the page. You get to chapter 11, the people complain. Okay, so there you have it. The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And so visible, tangible consequences for the grumbling attitude as it sparked a fire and that fire started coming in from the outskirts, from the perimeter. So the people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So it's a volitional test on Moses' behalf. Thankfully, he's still in the mood to intercede for these people. And so he did. He prayed for them, and the fire stopped. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And usually when places get named like this, you can check the footnote, and it tells you it means burning. You can learn the Hebrew vocabulary of the expression that's there. So uh, I think the New American Standard and a lot of the modern Bibles are pretty good about giving you the, the meaning of some of these expressions when they're found in that way. All right, so first, uh, first stop along the, the march is Tabera, which means burning, and uh, not, uh, not a lot of fondness to think of those things there. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. So this is the follow-up to the first grumbling. That Verses 1 through 3 was just one grumbling. Verses 4 and following are moving on to the next. And actually we're going to find a total of three rebellions in this section, which you'll notice in the notes on the left-hand column. Between Sinai and Kadesh, Moses had to deal with three rebellions, starting in 11.1 and taking us through 12.16. Uh, there was a general complaint over the adversity of traveling through the wilderness, grumbling about the... Uh, you know, the territory they're marching through, and that's uh, verses 1 through 3. Then we have specific complaining related to the food, a specific complaint over the manna diet. And uh, again, you can rewrite that yourself and just say, specific complaint over God's faithful provision. Okay, because remember, the manna is God's faithful provision. And what God has designed is good. Remember, everything God designs is good and what God provides is good. Every perfect gift comes from the Father and we have these principles that, uh, that we'll see here as we work our way through. So the general complaint over the adversity of traveling through the wilderness, the, the specific complaint over the manna diet, and that takes us from verse 4 down through verse 35. And then when we get into chapter 12, there is a family complaint by Aaron and Miriam against Moses' marriage to a Cushite woman. Well, that's important to argue about. That's, in fact, that's worth derailing the entire national agenda 
just so that uh, the family can express their displeasure at, at Moses' uh, love life or his dating relationships or his choice of a marriage partner. And uh, we'll get to that here in a moment. We've already read verses 1 through 3 as it applies to the general complaint of the people, a complaint of adversity, a rap, anything that's bad or evil or wickedness. Uh, you know, things that are bad, they are bad, okay? Don't, don't pretend that they're not, but they are going to work together for good. So just trust in God that He knows what He's doing. And if He allows for some adversity in your life, what was the, the principle we saw in Job when Job told Mrs. Job, shall we accept good from God and not adversity, not the, the bad that comes along? If God sent it then, uh, or permitted it, then hey, praise God. God is good. So instead of grumbling about what's bad, celebrate what's good and remind yourself that God is good. And uh, if, if these verses aren't uh, your favorites, then, then put your own in there. Um, but Exodus uh, 33, 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you. This is, uh, maybe this is the first my dad had in mind when he, he, he hated it when, when his kids would say, oh my goodness. And he'd stop us. He wouldn't let us say, oh my goodness, growing up. He'd say, you have no goodness. You know, only God has goodness. And God imputed his goodness to your account when you got saved. So theologically he was correct. But I think he just had a, he had a, you know, we all have little things that we grumble about. And his was, oh my goodness. Okay, pet peeves. That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, that was his pet peeve, was the oh my goodness pet peeve. Numbers 10, verses 29 and 32. Again, God is the one who is good. And he has promised good. Whatever good the Lord does for us, he, we will do for you. So yeah, God is good. If, if you're experiencing a circumstance in your life that's not good, you know, don't laugh about it. Don't, you know, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to cry. Your flat tire is not good, but it will work together for good. And uh, if you trust God and His faithfulness, God's provision is good. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that He had made, behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is a verse we talked about the other day because I think it gets abused. It gets abused terribly by some young earth creationists who feel that this verse is proof that Satan couldn't possibly have been a fallen creature before Genesis 1-2. And, uh, but that's a misreading of this verse. When God saw all that He had made, you're looking at Genesis 1-3-30. to You're looking at the six-day account, all that God had made. And uh, everything in Genesis 1, 3 through 30 was good uh, as far as what he had made. Whatever Satan did before that is irrelevant to what this verse happens to say. Likewise, Genesis 2, 9, God is good in all that he does. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Isaiah 5, 20, and, and it's a substitution where you are living in open denial. Reality is what it is. And our culture is so lost because it's trying to redefine reality based upon what they want it to be. And uh, in their imaginary world of make-believe, what they think the world ought to be in their image, and anything that does falls short of their image uh, is what they call bad, and everything that conforms to their image is what they call good. And uh, we're just living in the midst of a, of a lost generation. All right, well anyway, back to these grumblers. And as we saw with Nadab and Abihu, the judgment is immediate. They're grumbling, the Lord's anger is kindled, here comes the fire, and it consumes some of the outskirts of the camp. So we don't get a body count, we don't know the number of people that were lost, but it was some number of people as they started to cry out to Moses and the judgment was, uh, was suspended. All right, then we get to the specific complaint about the manna diet. So let's read some of these weasel words while we're here. Um, the rabble who were among them. And I like that. I like the phrase, the rabble. Okay, The rabble who were among them. And this is God's label for it. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's put in the Scriptures. So we're not insulting these people. God put this word in there. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat free in, in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna, except this faithful, miraculous, wonderful provision from the Lord that just shows up six mornings every week. And it's, it's sufficient, and it's it's it's. Uh, we even had the the flavor that was tasted, in, or the flavor that was described 
in uh, back in Exodus 16 when we were first introduced to the to the manna. Anyway, the manna was like coriander seed. Its appearance was like bdellium. And the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. What's wrong with that? And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. So there you go. I mean, it seems like it's perfect provision to me. But they were tired of it. What God supplies, ho-hum, here we go again. See? Anyway. The complaint was uh, started by the rabble called the uh, the Asafsuf. Asafsuf. How about that? Anyway, it's a reduplication of Asaf, to gather or to collect. And so it's kind of an idiomatic way of talking about, you know, when you gather together a mob, when you gather together a, a bunch of folks that, you know, like the rabble in the, in the marketplace or whatever. They just, they just collect. They seem to show up in various places. The mixed multitude that came up with Israel out of Egypt begins to be a thorn in the side of Israel. Remember, we, we talked about it back in chapter 12 that there were several Egyptians that wanted to join with them at the Exodus and maybe other slaves that were neither Egyptian or Jewish, but that mixed multitude that, that came with uh, the Jewish people out of the bondage in Egypt, now we start to see that if they don't have, if they're not grounded in faith, if they're not uh, believers, uh, then, you know, it's not surprising that some of their attitudes would start to bleed through and start to uh, start to wear off. This rebellion was launched through a dissatisfaction of the Lord's gracious provision. And so the Lord had to remind his readers of how perfect, or Moses rather, had to remind his readers of how perfect the provision of manna actually was. Okay? And so he graciously does that in recording those details there in verses 7 through 9. When the grumbling spread through the camp, Moses became angry in his prayers to the Lord. You ever be angry when you're praying? Moses was right here. Okay? So, let's read these. Verses 10 and following. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, uh, each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. I think that dynamic is interesting too. But this is uh, this is the sanctified eavesdropping that happens when you know, Moses is hearing the grumbling and he sees it's coming from a broad spectrum of the camp throughout their families, each man at the doorway. So, you know, while he's in the center of the camp and you've got the, the eastern camp, the southern camp, the western camp, the northern camp, and all the various tribes where they're located, and Moses is hearing this, this grumbling everywhere he turns. So it's widespread. So it's the Lord's anger kindled greatly, but it was Moses displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? <laughs> so he's not reacting well to it and this becomes his test. Okay? And so God always has these, these multifaceted things that are at work. Yes, the people are grumbling and yes, that's going to have to be dealt with. But in the meantime, this provides Moses with his own testing realm and he's, he's blowing it here. So uh, was it I who conceived all this people? <laughs> you know, he didn't procreate these, uh, these people. Uh, was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Okay? And we might say something similar in our own grumbles and our own complaints. You know, if somebody's acting like a baby, you could say, you know, you're not my baby, you know, and, and whatever the case may be. So where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. It's almost like he's daring God to strike him dead right here in this angry prayer, you know, and, and, and just join the long list of, of believers that blew it in their, in their test and tried to commit suicide or, you know, Jonah tried, got thrown overboard from the ship and, and various other attempts that were made and uh, almost taunting the Lord to kill him right here, right now. So, uh, the Lord is patient, listened to the temper tantrum, gives an answer, says, gather the 70 men for me from the elders of Israel. Now this goes back, these instructions actually echo an event we saw in Exodus when Moses' father-in-law said, 
you're going to wear yourself out. You need help. And, um, and that was back in, in Exodus 18. And Moses agreed. He said, you're right. I need help. And so he appointed these elders. And why is Moses not calling upon those elders right now to start dealing with this grumbling and start taking some of the burden off of his own shoulders? Why does he feel like he's got to solve everything? He's got to fix everything. So the Lord's patiently answering this prayer, providing him with the assistance, uh, even while Moses is doubting the Lord's provision. This wisdom is here for a reason. (laughs) So yeah, here comes the promise. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you will eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Yeah, bragging about all the free meat that they had in Egypt. They were slaves. If they did get any kind of meat, it was whatever table scraps were left over after the master had finished eating. And uh, it's highly doubtful they had much meat to eat at all, honestly. But um, be that as it may. So God says, You want meat? I'll give you meat. It's going to come out of your nostrils and you're going to puke. So... um, you shall eat meat, not one day, not two days, not five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? And so here's the thing, this is the nature of fallen humanity, and I think it's a perversion of normal humanity, and that we're designed to be, God has designed us in His image, and the image of God is very loyal. Chesed love is a loyalty. And so with loyalty, like the father's loyalty to the son or the son's loyalty to the father or God's loyalty to us or the loyalty he expects us to have in our marriage, all of the loyalty that's built into the image of humanity or the image of God in humanity, all of that gets perverted in carnality. So fallen man comes along and they have a perversion of loyalty that becomes addiction. And then the nature of addiction is such that uh, you, you want the variety, and you're tired of the same. You need the new thrill. You need the new taste, the new flavor, the new, uh, you know, sex partner, whatever it is. You know, because marriage is so humdrum, and all oh, this boring person for all these years. And so the whole idea is, that, sorry, that that was just a random illustration. Boy, if looks could kill. The. Um, humanity comes along and and says, oh, I don't like this taste. I want something new. I want something different. And here's the thing, when God gives you what you want, how long does it take before now that becomes the humdrum? Now that becomes the boring. Now that becomes the, and you got to move on to the next item. I think about a month is what he's saying here. After about a month of this, you are just sick of it. All right. And Moses said, the people among whom I am are 600 LF on foot. Remember, we, we dealt with that in Exodus. We dealt with that in Numbers chapter 1. And uh, again, you can just hover your mouth, mouse over that and see the 600 LF on foot, foot soldiers. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? You know, I don't think Moses has a clue how many fish are in the sea. You know, God, God can feed humanity and we're not running out of land and we're not running out of food. And uh, all the satanic uh, earth worshipers that say we're overpopulated are just spouting the lies of Satan. Anyway, so they're going to gather the 70 men and these elders and they're going to they're going to uh, have the things here. All right, let's get to 70 elders are assembled, the leaders of the families within the 12 tribes of Israel. We'd been introduced to them previously, uh, again, when Jethro was giving the, the advice. But here on, for this episode, notice they are given short-term prophetic ministry. Isn't this interesting? So the Lord comes down in the cloud and spoke to him and took the spirit who was upon him, placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. Okay? But they did not do so again. This is just a one-time event. And, and it's, it's to, to fill these men with the Holy Spirit, to give them prophetic insight, to bless them for this event so they can have ministry towards these, these fault finders, these grumblers, this rabble complaining about the meat. And uh, what a contrast with the church age, of course. We have the universal uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the, the blessings of our stewardship.
but the short-term prophetic ministry. There's other examples of that I'm going to pass by tonight in terms of um, temporary, like when Samuel receives the Spirit, other people receive the Spirit. It could come or go very, very readily in Old Testament times. A couple of men were missing. Two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, the name of the other was Medad. Don't know why they were missing, if it was an excused absence or whatever. They did not report when Moses summoned the 70. Only 68 showed up. Uh, but the Spirit rested on them also. How about that? And uh, so they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad uh, are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, there's an important detail, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. I find that interesting. And so I put these in the notes, points B and C. Joshua and the younger generation, they they don't know how to handle this. But Moses is rejoicing over the longer manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It seems like the two who weren't present, not only did, did they get the Holy Spirit separately, but it seemed to last longer in their case. Rejoicing over the longer manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Even going so far as to say, are you jealous for my sake? Here's Moses' statement. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on all of them. Moses probably doesn't realize this, but he's actually prophesying of what will be true of Israel in the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. At the second advent of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all humanity, and the Jewish people in particular are going to be vested in the prophetic office. Jewish people in the millennium are going to have prophetic visions. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, we're told in, in Joel chapter 2. So he's, Moses, as far as Moses is concerned, man, the universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that's a dream come true. Which you and I have and we take for granted in the church age because we all have the, the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And here we are living the life that Moses thinks is, is a dream come true and, uh, and sometimes we just don't appreciate what God's given us. All right, then here comes the quail, and it comes, and there is just more quail than you can shake a stick at. And uh, answer the desire of Israel with the imperfect curse provision. You know, sometimes the best prayers in the world are when God answers no, okay? Because when He answers yes, giving you what you ask for, but then you get that yes-no combination where yes, you get what you asked for, but no, the, uh, the desire is not met because God's not rewarding your carnal desire. He's actually highlighting what your carnal desire is and why it's wrong. So He gives you what you want, but you don't have the desire you think that, that it's going to provide. A circle of quail, perhaps 20 mile radius, 18 inch deep. That's a lot of quail. I mean, just trying to measure the cubic feet, the cubic miles of 20 mile radius, a foot and a half deep. That's a lot of quail. The people gathered 10 homers at a minimum, proceeded to gorge themselves. People spent all day and all night and all the next day gathering up the quail. I mean, how much more work was that compared to going out and getting your manna for the morning? I mean, that would have been the easier, obeying the plan of God. So you spend all day long, you spend half of the next day, and then of course there's your lost productivity because you weren't working that day. And aren't they supposed to be marching? All right, but they're, they're, they're gathering up all this quail. And ten homers, that's unbelievable. He who gathered least. You know, you wonder what the guy who gathered most ended up with. And spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this people. And the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So they give, So this place gets a name. The name of this place, Kibroth Hatavah, because they buried the people who had been greedy. The graves of greediness. Alright, so yeah, the, the stops along the way are not, uh, not friendly reminders. When, when they have the, the itinerary reviewed at the end of their journeys, uh, every one of these itinerary stops is going to be a reminder of their failure, a reminder of, of their defiance of God's marvelous grace. Yeah, so if a homer equals the normal load of grain for a donkey. So imagine a donkey load of grain. 
And imagine 10 donkey loads. <laughs> I mean, seriously. So the Lord struck the gluttons with a plague while it was still in their mouths and got some theirs. All right, the naming of the camps along the way is becoming quite predictable. We've had rebellion, bitterness, fire, and now graves of the greediness. And, uh, and we're not even to Kadesh Barnea yet. We're still trying to get to the, to the boundary of, of the promised land. Which gets us to chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. Well, that's news to us. We didn't know that. You know, it's a parenthesis here in the book of Numbers. But if the guy writing the book doesn't tell you what happened, how are we supposed to know what happened? Well, <laughs> They disapproved of his marriage to a Cushite woman. Now we know who Cush is because of the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, which doesn't really help us with this because what we knew of Moses was that he had married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, the high priest of Midian. And the Midianites are not the Cushites. There's there's distinctions there. Okay, The Midianites descend from Abraham and his his, uh, wife Keturah. Whereas Cush as a descendant of Ham in uh, the Table of Nations. So a lot of legends about this. He had married a Cushite woman. Okay, when? Recently? Long time ago? What's going on? We want more details and and Moses is not telling us. It's not really matter anyway. Um, So there's a suspicion that maybe this was a first wife before Zipporah. That's what Josephus wrote about. Josephus recorded this in his Antiquities of the Jews that Moses actually had a wife during the time that he was in Egypt before he had to flee. So this was perhaps a wife that he abandoned when he fled to Midian. And and, and who knows? Okay, That's, that's that's the rumor Josephus heard. And then, but or there was also a possibility that, that this was a second wife after the death of Zipporah. Well, okay, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us when Zipporah died. Or maybe a second wife in addition to Zipporah, because yeah, you know, she was a problem. Maybe he decided to take a second wife. Who knows? We don't know. It's none of our business. Maybe one of the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt could have been a Cushite woman. Or maybe it's the same woman as Zipporah because we don't really know who Jethro's wife was. And we don't know if Jethro had, uh, and just because Zipporah was the daughter of Jethro doesn't mean that, are we assuming that she was, uh, that she was a Midianite? Maybe she was a Cushite woman. Um, so it's possible that she could have been the same as Zipporah. Maybe they were grumbling about Zipporah. We don't know. We do know that whatever it was that caused them to grumble, it seemed to be that her ethnicity was, was, the, was the driving factor of the, of the complaint. He married a Cushite woman, and that was outrageous in their view. Then they go on to describe why they should be able to have ministry more so even than Moses. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? I mean, I'm sure Aaron has had some utterances over the years that seem to be pretty good. Or Miriam, she wrote a song and had a tambourine dance after the, after the Red Sea crossing. So, you know, she has some kind of credit there to her, <laughs> her production. Who knows? But the Lord heard it. Okay, the Lord hears these things. And the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Okay, just ask him. He, he put that down in the book. He wrote that. And honestly, if he wasn't as humble as he was, I don't think he could have written that. See, honestly. So suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. So now it's time for a family meeting. Okay? Because remember, they're all siblings. And uh, you know the oldest is the sister, and then Aaron, and then Moses was the baby. So they have the family meeting. Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, stood at the doorway of the tent, called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, hear now my words. And this is not a happy message for Moses, for Aaron and, and for Miriam. Is there a prophet among you? If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. Okay, Because yes, Moses is a prophet, but he is more than a prophet. Okay? He's the mediator of the covenant. He's the redeemer of the nation. He is the type of Christ. He is so much more than a prophet. Okay? 
He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. There's a principle that's at work here. There is absolutely a principle that's at work here. And I give this to you in point two in the outline. And um, yeah, this is the Lord's call and, and then the, the, the rebuke that comes here revealing the intimacy of his face-to-face relationship with Moses. The principle of lifting one's hand against the Lord's anointed. How dare you? How dare you when Moses is his anointed, his spokesman, his messenger, and, and you're going to criticize him? You're criticizing the Lord is who you're criticizing. Your rebellion is not against man. Your rebellion is against God. And this is a principle that comes back again and again and later in the Scripture. In fact, this was heavy on David's heart. David would not lift a hand against King Saul. Even though Saul was a wicked king and even though he knew that he was next in line, God had promised, when Saul's gone, you're the next king. And David, uh, you know, he knew it, but he was going to let God handle the details on that. He was not going to try to accelerate things. He was not going to try to help God make good on his promises by, you know, killing Saul when he had the chance. Several times he had the chance to kill King Saul, and he wouldn't do it. And he specifically quoted this concept here of not raising his hands against the Lord's anointed. 1 Samuel 24, 6, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing. See, far be it from me since he is the Lord's anointed. Absolutely. And I've thought similar things through the years too when I've heard criticism against you know, Pastor Ralph, or criticism against RB theme, or criticism, you know, all these things. I just, you know, I tremble, saying, man, shut your mouth, okay? They're, they're, you know, they're, they're in God's hands. Let God deal with them. And then don't invite judgment upon yourself by, by doing those kind of things. All right. Anyway, that's the principle there. The reproof was against Miriam, but the repentance was voiced by Aaron, and, uh, and, and good for him when Aaron uh, pleads for the mercy here, because uh, this was the, the curse of leprosy upon Miriam here. And so Aaron uh, repented and cried out to Moses and begged for her forgiveness. Do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. So Moses cried out, O oh God, heal her. Well, she's going to have to deal with this for seven days. It's not going to be an instantaneous uh, okay, it's all better now. She's going to have to to think about this, you know, like when you're grounded and sent to your room and think about it. Well, in her case, it was seven days of leprosy. So uh, the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. That's the other thing. All of these delays in the march. It shouldn't have taken them so long to get from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, but the fire rebellion, the quail rebellion, the the Miriam leprosy delay. All right. Which gets us to the spies. All right. So after a week's delay, the nation of Israel arrived at the wilderness of Paran, a location later known as Kadesh. And they finally come to a location that's not named after one of their failures. (laughs) A place that already had a name. Although keep in mind, most of these places that have multiple names anyway, right? They're going to have two or three different names. They're going to be known by Different, in different languages by different people groups. They'll have different names that way. And then sometimes the same people group will rename a location based upon you know, their opinion. Okay? And I think it becomes pretty clear that the, that the wilderness generation um, had a different appreciation of Sinai than the Exodus generation did. And so by the time we get to the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to find that Mount Sinai is more consistently referred to as Mount Horeb rather than Mount Sinai. Same mountain, same location, just with a different name. Why is that? What's the difference that a generation makes? Well, you'd be surprised. All right, which gets us now to Numbers chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. Let me read that again because this is the Lord's idea. Um, 40 years from now, people are going to start thinking it was their idea. okay? And maybe it was, but it was God's idea first. And then if God pops it into their head to say, hey, we should send some spies out, then both passages are actually true. 
So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. And so they're on the border. They've reached Kadesh. They're ready to go now. And before the whole army just marches across and starts conquering everywhere, uh, this is the Lord's idea to send some spies, send the representatives in. All right. And why does God do this? Well, <laughs> can you imagine what a train wreck it would be if he didn't? If uh, I mean, we, we know what happens when he sends 12 and it's overwhelming, public opinion is 10 to 2 against, against conquering. You know, imagine if the whole nation was in there when all of a sudden on a 10 to 2 ratio all the people start saying, you know, when 10 tribes say we're out of here and only two tribes are ready to, ready to fight. So uh, I think it's, uh, it's uh, pretty clear that God knows what He's doing and He knows all the what-ifs and, and He knows better. So, uh, so this, it is a failure on Israel's part, but God mitigates the damage and has a much uh, you know, a, a better outcome in the long run, we would say. So Moses is going to dispatch these spies, 12 spies from 12 tribes, sending them throughout the land. And these are the leaders. Now these leaders, the term is rosh, which means head or, or leader, um, chief. It's a different term than we had earlier with the, the, the tribal princes that were bringing the sacrifices. Or um, Anyway, these, these heads are tribal heads. The, uh, the, the, the number one, I'm sorry, in chapter one, the heads from number one are tribal heads. They're the top leaders of their tribe. These spying heads are below that. They're at some division lower than that, either clans or, or families or households at some point. But they're not insignificant people, that's the issue. They're heads of other divisions, either clan, family, or house. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, represented the tribe of Judah. Of course, he's the most famous because him and Joshua um, are the ones that survive to enter the land in 40 years. Uh, Joshua by the name Hoshea, again, different spelling, different pronunciation, same guy. Hoshea, Joshua, the son of Nun, represented the tribe of Ephraim. And, and this is where uh, if, if you, if you want to have the Hoshea spelling, that's fine. If you want to have the Joshua spelling, that's fine. If you want to have the Greek spelling, then we're talking about Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the Greek spelling for, for Joshua. And if you want to have the uh, Spanish, it's Jesus. If you want to insist that it's Jesus instead of Jesus, then that's what we learned with, uh, with Enrique here a couple weeks ago. All right. So Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hoshea, the son of Nun. Um, who are the other ten guys? Don't know, don't care. Well, I guess I should say I don't care. They're in the Bible for a reason, but we don't often memorize that list. We don't authorize, memorize, you know, we don't often take the time to learn. When I was a Sunday school teacher, though, I had a student who memorized all ten, their names and their tribes, because I had promised ice cream the following Sunday if any one of the, the Sunday school kids could do it. And sure enough, one student did it, and I had to make good on my promise and take her to get some ice cream. All right. Anyway, they're listed here for us. Shemua, Shaphat, Caleb, Eagle, Hosea, Pelti, Gadiel, these guys. Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabi, Ghul. Their names, their father's names, their tribe. All listed there. God-breathed and inspired. Profitable. So these are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So you have a nickname, a name that you're called by. That's, that's uh, an adaptation of your actual given name. Moses commissions the twelve spies with the following responsibilities. Assess the military strength of the inhabitants. Evaluate the quality of the land. Open field and cities for military operations. Thirdly, estimate the quality of the farmland and obtain fruit samples. So that's verses 18, 19, and 20 here of this, uh, of this chapter. Moses sent them to spy out the land. Go up there into the Negev. Go up into the hill country. Okay? Now this is, uh, this is reconnaissance. This is what you do in a military formation. This is what you do when, when, uh, you know, before an invasion. You want to know the lay of the land. You want to, you want to have some, uh, some, some 
G2 intelligence and, and things like that on, on this. So uh, what's the land like? Uh, the, the people who live in it, are they strong? Are they weak? Uh, are they few or are they many? How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Because it was the time of the first ripe grapes. All right, well, they do what they're told. The spies spy through the, uh, the land. They go all the way. The survey covered the land in its entirety, which is kind of curious. And then, you know, um, the occupants of the land, they, did they know who these guys were? Did they know who these strangers were that were just showing up? Were they concerned about it at all? By the time we get to the Jericho example, it's pretty clear that they had their own intelligence network, that they knew who the, who the Jews were. They'd heard about Egypt. They'd heard about some of the other uh, battles that they'd fought. Um, and yet they seemed to roam at will. They seem to go where they want, see what they want to see, take what they want to take. And it's almost like Satan was pleased to let them complete their mission. He was pleased to let them see what Satan wanted them to see. So, they went up and spied the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Lebo Hamath. And again, these are your opportunities if you want to, uh, to right-click and pull up a map Pull up Lebo Hamath. Pull it up in the Atlas. This is the route of the spies. This is an estimated route of the spies. Nobody really knows. But you can put the southern boundary there. You can put the northern boundary there. And you can see that they covered it from south to north. There we go. From Horma up to Lebo Hamath. That's even north of Damascus there. So they, they covered quite a bit. They covered territory even beyond what, what they're going to conquer a generation from now in the, in the days of Joshua. Alright, so there's Kadesh Barnea. And, and like I said, just play with this. It's, all of these maps are available to you in the Lagos Atlas. You can right-click any term, and if you can tell it's a geographical term, you're going to spot it over there. You're going to look for that little, uh, looks like a, an icon that looks like a, a Google Maps uh, pin. And uh, that's what the icon looks like. And you can tell that it's a place because it tells you it's a place. Wilderness of Zin is a place. And it has the right icon. So as soon as you left-click that, you can either open the fact book or you can open the atlas. And it'll show you the wilderness of Zin, along with the wilderness of Moab and the wilderness of Edom and the wilderness of Sin. Sin is not Zin, okay? S-I-N and Z-I-N, different wildernesses. Wilderness of Sinai is not the wilderness of Sin. The wilderness of Shur, the wilderness of Paran. This is a spiffy map of wildernesses. And, and if, if a location shows up on multiple maps... You'll see that here on the left. So there's multiple maps that have the wilderness of, of Zin. We want to select the route of the spies. There we go. And that brings the one that we're looking at here in Numbers chapter 13. And scroll in and have fun with it and enjoy. You can then either open it up in Google Maps or open it up in Bing Maps and see what it looks like today. If you want to see what Lebohemath looks like today, you can do it. All right. So they went up and spied out the land. What would they have done if they had Google Maps back then? <laughs> All right. So when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahaman, Shishai, and Talmai. Memorize these three names. Okay? And you'll be able to tell, you'll be able to name more than one giant in the Bible. I mean, everybody knows Goliath. Name these guys. Ahaman, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. So it's an old town, an ancient, ancient fortified city. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men, some of the pomegranates and the figs. And you know, when you're 
It's like when I went to Uganda and I saw uh, the, the avocado that was bigger than, you know, like a, like a cantaloupe or a watermelon. I mean, the thing was huge. Hold it in two hands, this monster avocado. And I'm thinking, man, how do I market this? How do I, I need a pipeline of Uganda avocados into Texas and we can, we can do something with that. So yeah, these guys were all impressed with the grapes and the pomegranates. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the son of Israel cut down from there. So they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. All right, so Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days a couple of times. They're, they've got a 40-day sojourn through the land because they've got to they traverse it south to north and then they've got to come back north to south spying out everything that they're spying along the way. Their survey covered the land in its entirety over a period of 40 days. The biggest impression any city made was the city of Hebron. That's the one that the narrative highlights and that's the one that made the big impression. That's the one they're going to be grumbling about when they explain why they have to go back to Egypt. Hebron has an older name. It was known as Kiriath Arba. And uh, in fact we got details on this in in Genesis 23-2. Abraham sojourned there for a while. It's not too far from the territory where, uh, remember the cave of Machpelah where he had purchased a cave, a burial plot for um, Sarah. One of the most ancient cities of the post-Diluvian world, probably founded uh, shortly after the flood and even prior to the Tower of Babel incident. It was that quickly in its, in its, in its uh, foundation. The oldest cities are the most fortified as the most fortified cities endure the longest. That's kind of a chicken and egg question. Um, the longer the city's been there, the more time they've had to, to build up the fortifications. Likewise, the more fortified they are, the, the longer they're likely to last, just because you know, the better fortifications mean you're not getting conquered. So uh, anyway, this was the case certainly with Hebron. Not only was it fortified, they had these three giants living there. The sons of Anak. Hebron was fortified and inhabited by three Anakim giants. And we saw the phrase in verse 22, the expression that they were sons of Anak. By name, Ahaman, Shishai, and Talmai, the seed of Anak, or the sons of Anak. Children of Anak. All right. And then when the, when the spies start complaining about why they can't conquer the land, we haven't gotten that far yet, but they'll start using these words about giants in verses 28 and 33. So let's read these complaints. They returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. They proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Good news. We saw everything we hoped to see, but we also saw more. And that's the bad news. Nevertheless, The people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the sons of Anak there. We saw these these giants, the descendants of Anak. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. So they've got the people groups and they've got them plotted accurately where they are, where they're positioned. But it's these giants that are the biggest problem. So there's Amalek, the um, Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites living in the hill country, the Canaanites are living by the sea, the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people. So not only are these loudmouth spies, uh, you know, they, they had to jump in and get their report first thing before Caleb and Joshua could say anything. And they were able to stir up such a reaction now that the congregation at large is in a turmoil. So Caleb has to quiet them before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. Caleb can't believe his ears. What are you talking about? This is our land. God promised it to us. By all means we should go up. Are the giants there? All the better. You know? This is going to be fun. Because God made the promise. You know? It'd be kind of disappointing if we got to the land and they were all just a bunch of midgets or dwarfs or something, you know, just wimps. You know, that would be, what kind of glory does God get in that kind of episode? Okay? I'm not trying to insult little people, I'm just saying. If it was 
a population of seven dwarves instead of seven nations of tall people, then uh, it wouldn't be quite so glorious for God in the, the victory that's being provided here. All right. Anyway, Caleb is encouraging them. So they gave out to the, uh, but notice, <laughs> they're not listening to Caleb. They're listening to the, to the ten faithful spies. The men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people. They're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they spied out, saying the land which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Now that's not true. It was just the three giants that they saw. But, you know, through fear and exaggeration, they were all giants just because there were three of them there. We also saw the Nephilim, sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. See, all these references to the sons of Anak pinpointing the, um, the Nephilim nature of Anak and the Nephilim nature of his offspring. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in their sight. All right, so that's the details there. Hebron was fortified and, and uh, inhabited by three Anakim giants. The Anakim are a division of those Nephilim that were generated upon the earth after the flood. You might remember, I made a big deal of this when we were in Genesis chapter 6, and some of you were thinking, why is he making a big deal of this? Because now it's making sense. Back in Genesis 6, before the flood, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, before the flood, and also afterward. How does that happen? How, how can Nephilim show up after the flood? If they were on earth before the flood, and if the flood killed everybody except for Noah and his family, then how do they, how do they come back? Well, how do they possibly come back if they were killed before the flood? Okay, A thousand years later, 1,500 years later, they're coming back. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man. This is how a Nephilim arrives a Nephilim arrives when an angel has sex with a woman. A fallen angel, a human woman. This is how you make a Nephilim. And they were doing that before the flood. Guess what? They started doing it after the flood. They started doing it. I think Satan got busy with it as soon as Israel was in bondage in Egypt. He started populating the land with giants. Because he knows what God promised Abraham. God promised Abraham they were going to be slaves for 400 years and come back. So Satan starts populating Nephilim in the land before they could come back. When sons of God, fallen angels, come in to the daughters of men, human women, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men, men of old, men of renown. This is how you make a Nephilim. This is how you create a giant. Greek word used here are the gigantes, the giants. Like the Nephilim that were generated on earth before the flood, these giants are the offspring of fallen angels and human women. Alright, so the spies return, they give a bad report. Isn't it interesting? Kadesh means holy. (laughs) And here they are, defying God, failing to appreciate what the holy God is providing for them. Good news is The agricultural potential is amazing. Bad news, we will never enjoy the land's bounty because of the giants in the land. You know, human beings, carnal human beings, of course carnal believers or even unbelievers, you you can never, can always find an excuse why they can't obey. Why they can't do what God wants them to do. God, I would love to obey you, but there's giants there. Like, Like God is ignorant of the giants that were there. He knew they were there. Just do what you're told. Don't assume that that you know more than God. So Caleb speaks up with a positive message. The faithless spies reject Caleb's encouragement and spread the negative volition human viewpoint among the people of Israel. See, And we have similar warnings today in the church. eh? That's why you can't put up with the, the false teaching. That's why you have to, you can't let the gangrene spread. You know, one pastor with one message of encouragement and then you got a committee of of uh, grumblers, how far does the grumbling spread before the pastor even hears it and then addresses it? It's already spread. So these patterns become uh, important. All right. So when we, let's see, tomorrow.
Here we go. Oh, you know what's missing? I have a damaged book there. I don't have my toolbar at the top. All right, I'll try to fix that before tomorrow. Um, we'll handle chapter 14 and 15 tomorrow, the fallout from this expedition. Because they're going to take a vote. They're going to decide that 10 outnumbers two, and they're just going to fire Moses and get a new leader and, and go on back to Egypt. And um, we'll have to deal with that tomorrow night because that's not what God wants to happen. And uh, the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua, they're the ones that God's going to single out and say, uh, okay, these two get to go into the land, but it's going to be 40 years from now. And all the rest of you, and your whole generation, are going to die in the wilderness. That's the consequences, okay? Which to me, I'd rather chomp on some more rotten quail. I don't know. I mean, it just seems like each time they rebel, the consequences are getting ramped up more and more and more. Each successive rebellion carries with it greater and greater impact. This is a death sentence on their generation. But we'll talk about that tomorrow night. Okay? Sleep well. Happy message. We'll come back tomorrow night and talk about the death sentence on this generation. Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together and the blessing that it is. This whole year has been amazing. We've covered 63 classes now and uh, we'll come back for more tomorrow, Father. Thank you for being faithful. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.